Welcome to a Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Here is your host, Antoine Martel. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Today I have Mark Roderick. He is one of the leading crowdfunding investing in fintech lawyers in the U.S. We're going to talk today about crowdfunding, blockchain, um, and then crowdfunding as it appears in real estate and also in law. So thanks for coming on the show today, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Um, so yeah, I guess first let's just start with your story a little bit. So how did you get involved in real estate or real estate investing? Um, from representing real estate developers. So I've, I've, uh, you know, I've represented entrepreneurs a long time and, um, like decades. <laughs> um, and among the entrepreneurs, I've represented a lot of real estate developers and like other entrepreneurs, but even more so as, as you know, yeah. um, real estate folks are always looking to raise capital. You know, I always say that if you are ever in a conversation with a real estate developer who's not looking to raise capital, call 911 because he or she is no longer breathing. Um, <laughs> so they're, always, they're always looking for capital. So I've been involved in helping them raise capital forever. And so that's how when the Jobs Act crowdfunding came on the, the radar, I realized, aha, this is going to be a super cool, disruptive, transformative deal. And in fact, um, when crowdfunding began, people thought that it was just, it was a sort of Silicon Valley yeah. phenomenon that the companies raising money would be high tech, you know, social media companies and so forth. And I actually wrote a blog post way back in the beginning saying, you know what? Real estate real estate would be a great asset class for crowdfunding. And that wasn't, it's not because of my blog post by any means, but as you yeah. also probably now know today, 95% or 90% at least of crowdfunding is real estate. So that is how it has turned out. Yeah. And when did, when did the whole crowdfunding and real estate actually, because the jobs act was passed when, and when, when were people actually able to crowdfund the real estate? The Jobs Act was passed in 2012, signed by uh, President Obama, and um, but it was the law itself, um, sort of the effectiveness was deferred until the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, wrote regulations. That began to happen in 2013, so the first kind of crowdfunding began in September of 2013, and then other kinds have been added. And real estate crowdfunding happened almost right away. Yeah. You know, the um, Realty Mogul, I, I remember when Realty Mogul began, um, and it was this tiny site, like all the sites, yeah. and it was doing little fix and, fix and flips. And of course, fast forward last month, one of my clients actually closed on one of the it closed on a 15 million dollar equity round for a a real estate project so wow that's 
that's a long distance traveled over just a few years. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you, so can you explain how the crowdfunding for real estate works like on the investor side, somebody investing into a crowdfunding, you know, what is the, people are paid an equity position in those deals or how are they, how are they paid out? Because I know, I remember that crowdfunding started, you know, way a couple of years or many years ago, let's say. And crowdfunding like Kickstarter and all that kind of stuff, but you weren't able to actually get equity in those companies. You could only, right. you know, get a product or like the first, you know, edition of X or Y, right? So when did so when did that change? Was that just in the last couple of years? And then how does it work when people want to invest in a crowd? Like if I go to Realty Mogul today, how does that whole process work? Yeah, so there, um, crowdfunding. I use the generic definition of anytime you're raising money online. So that that's a pretty good if you use that definition at a cocktail party, people think you're, you know, really sound <laughs> yeah, knowledgeable. Um and so we had the Kickstarter in Indiegogo version and we call that just by way of distinguishing it donation or rewards based yeah, crowdfunding yeah, yeah. cuz okay. that's what you get. You get a yeah. reward. You get a baseball cap, you get a watch, whatever. The in contrast, the word we use to describe what I do is equity crowdfunding, uh, where you're actually making an investment. And that's what became legal with the Jobs Act that was signed in 2012. The other stuff, donation-based, had already been legal and still is legal. It's very yeah. simple. But the equity-based crowdfunding is what became legal in, in 2012. And really, so... Like to your generation, this whole thing seems feels totally natural because yeah. it's just the Internet. And like everything you guys do, your whole life is, you know, Internet based. And you yeah. can't even remember it being, being anything else like, yeah. you know, your girlfriend you found on whatever. <laughs> and yeah. whatever, you know, you've, you've never even thought about calling a taxi in your whole life. Yeah. Right. It's just yeah. Uber. And you never would think about booking a plane trip on anything other than, you know, kayak or one of the other ones. So and that's all crowdfunding it is. It, it's just the Internet, just using the Internet to raise money. That's it. Yeah. And I always say, fortunately, there are a lot of complicated legal rules, so people have to hire me. Yeah. But for for the millennial generation in particular, it's just totally straightforward. You want to you want to raise money? Of course, you're going to do it online. Yeah. Um, and so when you go to invest in one of these deals online, like if you went up to sign up at Realty Mogul or Real Crowd or Crowd Street, it wouldn't look like anything surprising to you. You would register, you know, give your name, all this information, and then you would see various deals. And, um, you know, it would be like being at a, uh, you know, at a outdoor market where there's all different kinds of food and you would see all different kinds of real estate deals, yeah. different classes, multifamily office, industrial development. You'd see all these asset classes. You'd see some different deal structures. Like some you'd become an equity owner. Others, you'd just be lending money to them. Others, there'd be a cross, what we call preferred equity. It's kind of a loan and kind of equity. Got it. And there'd be this, you know, be this marketplace, and you'd walk around and say, yeah, here, I want to invest in that one and in that one and in that one. 
Um, and you would find it very straightforward. And and actually, I always say the best way to really get a feel for real estate crowdfunding is to do exactly what you suggested. Go to a few of those sites, sign up, look around, and you get a real feel for what the whole thing is about. Got it. And can anybody invest in those real estate crowdfunding? Do I have to be unaccredited? So I remember when that Realty Mogul came out, you had to be accredited, I think. And then was there a new law that was passed that so that you don't have to be accredited anymore? Or what's the current regulation on investing in those? So it is possible. So there are three flavors of crowdfunding. And we call them by titles based on what section of the Jobs Act they were in. There's Title II, Title III, Title IV. And Title II, which is by far the more, most prevalent, and Realty Mogul is all Title II, you do still have to be accredited only. Oh, I shouldn't say that about Realty Mogul. No, that's wrong. They they also offer a different kind, Title IV or Regulation A. It's a different kind of crowdfunding. Okay. And you do not you do not have to be accredited. So you could go to Realty Mogul right now or really any of the other sites and find deals that a non-accredited investor can can participate in. Uh, and there's a lot of them and there are some great deals. I got to say. Got it. Okay, cool. And then do you follow Grant Cardone at all? I know of Grant Cardone. Okay. Um, and and I hear the name a lot, but yeah. I don't follow Grant Cardone, okay. I guess. There, the, only, the only reason I ask is because he, he does multifamily syndications and he just came out with a fund that is, I think it's a crowdfunding fund because anybody can invest in it. It's, you know, accredited or non-accredited investors can invest in the fund and the minimum investments like $5,000 or something. So I think that may be what, you know, the section four that you called it. Title four, title which four. is also, it's, it's usually called regulation A and it's yeah. sometimes erroneously called regulation A plus, but yes, hundred percent sure that you are correct. If he is offering such a fund, it is a regulation A fund, and anybody can invest. The the only difference between accredited and non-accredited is accredited can invest can invest any amount they want, and non-accredited can invest. They're limited. In each deal, they can only only I I put in quotes only invest ten percent of their income or net worth, whichever is higher. Now. You'd be crazy to invest more than 10% of your income in a given one deal. Yeah. So the limitation is not much of a limitation, but there there is that difference. Got it. Okay, cool. And then can you explain the three flavors of, of crowdfunding? How are they all different? So we kind of got Title IV, sure. but how about the other two? Title II is the simplest, easiest, accredited investors only other than that, there are no rules. It's wild, wild west. And the reason is that a fundamental principle in our American securities laws, which date all the way back to the 1930s, 1930s, is that wealthy people can take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. They can hire lawyers and stuff. Non-wealthy people cannot take care of themselves. They need the paternalistic arm of the government around their shoulders. And that has worked That's a, worked very, very well uh, as a system for the last 85 years. Um, and so 
that's what accredited investor is supposed to mean, yeah. like wealthy person. Yeah. So that now it doesn't so much mean wealthy anymore because inflation has eroded the uh, the test two hundred thousand of income or three hundred thousand for a married couple or a million of net worth without your house. Those same the same dollar figures have been in place for more than thirty five years. Oh, wow. so back. 35 years ago, 200 of income was a lot more than it is today. But anyway, the idea is it means wealthy people. And that's why Title II doesn't have any rules, because wealthy people can take care of themselves. That's how the theory goes. So then I'll jump to Title IV because we were just talking about it. Title IV is like a kind of a public offering that companies go through. Very heavily regulated okay. because non-accredited people can participate. It have to go through a whole SEC process. You file a thick book. It takes months and months and months. It costs many tens of thousands of dollars. Um, very highly regulated. That's Title IV, which is what Grant Cardone must have just gone through. Yeah. And the third is Title III, which is a very brand new concept in American securities laws. This is the one that you read about a lot, um, uh, where there's no SEC review process, and yet non-accredited people can participate. And mm. it's all done online. The uh, You can only raise a million dollars per year using Title III, and every investor is very, very limited into how much he or she can invest. So it's for small companies. It's very small. To tell you the truth, it's not working very well. Really? There are some glitches. Huh. But so the Title II, Wild Wild West, anything goes. Title IV, very highly super regulated. Yeah. You're allowed super regulated. And Title III, small companies, small investments. You can think about it that way. Okay. Do you know for Title and I Go ahead. Go ahead. I was saying, do you know for Title Three? Say... <laughs> for Title Three, you go. You're the host. You <laughs> Thank you. Well, for Title no, for Title Three, um, then what is the? You said ten percent for like Title Four, right? For the non-accredited. So for Title Three, do you know what that percentage is? It varies based on your income, Got but it. it's a lot lower than ten percent. Wow. Okay. Okay. So what I was going to say is um, your listeners hopefully are not trying to scribble this all down. I, there's, I, I write a crowdfunding blog, and one of the many things – there's no marketing stuff there. It's just information. One of the many things I have there is a crowdfunding cheat sheet, which is a little table with the different kinds of crowdfunding and the rules that apply to each one. Got it. So – you can always go go there as a as a resource yeah. if you're confused. Yeah, feel free to plug it. What's the the website? It is crowdfund and then attny like an abbreviation for attorney. crowdfundattny.com. Got it. Cool. Thank you. And then for Title 3, are you allowed to publicly market for that or is that only on closed friends and family? Or pre-existing relationship. Nope. You, 
for all three, Title II, Title III, and Title IV, oh, you wow. are allowed to publicly market. Title III has some restrictions, but yeah. not worth talking about unless we got into a really granular discussion. But, got yeah, it. that's the thing about all three of them. You, From a developer's point of view, you're marketing your deal, whether it's two, yeah. three, or four. You're marketing it to every investor in the world. Yeah. Which is an incredible change for what the rules used to be. Yeah, true. Okay, cool. Um, and then is there a new tax law that should boost crowdfunding that just came out recently? Well, not really. I mean, the the 2017 tax law yeah. did did a couple things. One, it provided for a special deduction for investments made through limited liability companies and, and partnerships. Got so it. you can, in a real estate deal, potentially get a bit more of a deduction, although in real life that has not proven to be super important. And the other thing the law did was created these opportunity zones, this concept of special tax benefits for investing in, you know, eco economically distressed areas that have been designated as opportunity zones. Yeah. And there is a lot, a lot of activity around opportunity zone fund investing, which generally does involve real estate, doesn't have to. But, I mean, I should say, I mean, the law of real estate investing is very, very tax-advantaged. Yeah. And and always has been during, mm -hmm. you know, during my, my whole career. So the 2017 law did add a couple little goodies, but it's it's already, I mean, real estate is a great tax-advantaged yeah. uh, investment. Got it. Okay, cool. Now let's move over to blockchain. So first of all, what the hell is blockchain? What the hell is it? You tell me. <laughs> no. uh, blockchain is a technology that um, keeps track of things. And I, the reason I kind of chose my words carefully is it is, you know, I, I know there are going to be a lot of their blockchain you know, engineers here who are going to, no matter what I say, is going to say, oh, he didn't get that right. But that's basically what blockchain technology does. It keeps track of things. It just keeps track of them in a different and arguably a much better way than we already have for keeping track of things. Yeah. So you can think of blockchain. And again, I mean, lightning is just going to, bolts are going to hit me when I say this, but blockchain is sort of a super duper Excel spreadsheet, a super duper spreadsheet technology, a way of keeping track of things that the, the principal advantage of it is that you don't need any central authority to manage the spreadsheet. Like if you were to keep track of, of anything, anything in your life, yeah. the, a list of your friends or the real estate investments you own or all your possessions, to make a change to that, right, it would be you, the central character, making a change. And even if you, you and your friends, a group of your 
buddies got together and made a list of all the, all of your investments or anything, you'd have to designate someone, okay, you're in charge of making changes to this, yeah. right? Yeah. You'd have to have a central trusted, that's the key, trusted person making the changes. Yeah. In blockchain, you don't need a central person making the changes. Everyone on the blockchain has to consent that's built into the technology for any change to be made. So we call it a trustless technology, a trustless distributed ledger technology. But if I had said that in the beginning, you would have said, what the, what's the hell does that mean? He's just, using, you know, he's just making shit up. So, um, but, but that, what that boils down to is a super duper Excel spreadsheet. So Got that's, it. That's what blockchain technology is. Got it. Okay, cool. And then how do you think that that's going to affect real estate? I mean, I I saw last year that, you know, the first house was ever sold through the blockchain or or whatever. But do you think that you know, what is what's the point of it? So how is that going to affect real estate? So right. a normal Great real question. estate investor, how is that going to affect me? Normal real estate investor is not going to notice it even one single little bit. Wow. So do you think – so spreadsheets came out in the 80s and, and, and 90s. Did anybody notice that their title comp, their real estate title company was now using spreadsheets? No. No, they didn't. What they might have noticed was that the time that it took to, for the closing title clerk to make her calculations uh, I got you. was a lot faster. And – and therefore, maybe the cost of the title company came down a little, okay? And that's the same as when the telephone or the title company got started using a personal computer and email and um, the telephone, the fax machine, yeah. FedEx. Yeah. People started to notice that, hey, you can do things faster nowadays. So on the one hand, blockchain absolutely will permeate the real estate industry everything from how we keep track of deeds yeah. like who owns the real estate to environmental reports to the the closing sequence of events eventually many people believe it will all be handled on the blockchain because the blockchain is just really good at that stuff but no one will notice yeah. as a real estate buyer you won't you won't care yeah. you won't notice um like do you if you walk in the room if you walk in a room and flip on the light switch do you notice whether the electricity <laughs> is being generated by natural gas nuclear energy or wind yeah no it's a super <laughs> important change mm -hmm. right and you might be saving a lot of money or helping the environment but when you flip the switch on as far as you're concerned the light just comes on and, yeah. and that's how it'll be for the real estate industry also got it there's been there's been way too much um way too much it's almost it's beyond funny about uh how you know people have talked about blockchain revolutionary rep revolutionizing the whole world and getting rid of the banking system and all these things that's not in the cards. Um, you're, it's just going to be another really significant change that you're not going to notice. Got it.
And and for why do you think that it hasn't caught on yet? Why is the escrow company not using blockchain yet? What is what is stopping it from being something that all the escrow companies and all the closers can can use to speed up that process? Uh, there's a complicate. I mean, that the answer to that question is is multifaceted. Yeah. Meaning, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning, um, <laughs> there are a number of reasons. One, the blockchain so far is slow. It's way too slow okay. to handle the number of transactions. Okay, so like the old technology, like used at say Mastercard. <laughs> MasterCard's definitely looking at blockchain technology, but MasterCard handles like a billion transactions a second or something, and blockchain is is way too slow. Um, the uh, another constraint is that at least some of the blockchains use a massive amount of energy. Yeah, because the way this works with a distributed thing. Everyone's computer has to be involved. I mean, massive. You wouldn't believe how much energy they use. Yeah. And 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 the third thing is that um, converting an entire system, business model, from one kind of backbone to another to blockchain is an enormous task. Yeah. It's not something that you can do just a little bit. You have to kind of move, move the whole everything. thing up. Yeah. And businesses have not been convinced that the benefits of blockchain will justify that wholesale conversion. Because although blockchain has all this promise, um, the existing technologies continue to get improved themselves yeah. You know, every month every two months, every year, they get better so that, you know, blockchain, the benefits of blockchain kind of go get lower and lower as the competing technology gets better and better. I think many people still think it's going to happen and that there will be wholesale ad adaption, but it, it ain't easy. Yeah. It, it has not proven to be as nearly as easy as people thought it was going to be yeah yeah and also using all that power and all that data it's going to be expensive too so getting the price down too or you know like i said a supercharged excel spreadsheet my excel is free right now why would i pay all this money to upgrade yeah. to a slower system right you know and people don't necessarily want a trustless yeah. you know for example if if your mastercard um, you're not looking to create a trustless ledger. You're MasterCard. Yeah. You you're gonna be the, you know, you're you're gonna be the trusted person who manages the MasterCard system. And it's a real question whether consumers do consumers really want a trustless environment? Don't yeah. maybe they want, you know, someone in the middle that they can blame or trust to manage the entire apparatus so agree we'll see yeah 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 true i think we still have uh some time to for the technology to get better and more affordable and then some big players have to test it out i think before everybody's yes. going to adopt you know yeah i i completely agree with you yeah. and i you know i just personally i think um based on what has happened you know 
once it starts, if there is a future there, yeah, you know, Amazon Web Services is going to <laughs> be the central player, or Microsoft, or yeah. a few, you know, Google. There, yeah. we're not going to have all these decentralized systems, you know, just as everyone's business now, everyone's business is built on Amazon Web Services, right? Yeah, it, that's. I, I don't know why that wouldn't happen with blockchain technology also. Yep. No, I agree. I think. And then so how do you think blockchain is going to affect, in your space, the crowdfunding space? Is it going to – are people not going to notice the effect? Only the people doing the crowdfunding they are won't. Gonna... Yep. Wow. Yep. That's absolutely what I think. I mean there there are benefits. For example, we've talked about the differences between accredited and non-accredited investors. So. Yeah. It would be great if all that information, your accredited investor status were on a blockchain, that it could just be pinged. Mm -hmm. And so we wouldn't, you know, right now what happens is you have to get a letter from your accountant or a letter from your lawyer and it has to be emailed. And so there's friction. And if information were on a blockchain, uh, it could just be instantaneous. Pulled. Yeah. instantaneous so we cut out a little friction yeah i mean that's what blockchain does well yeah but will mark roderick notice that that's happening no yeah and so that brings up a good point right so like if i'm signing up for a crowdfunding website or service and they're on the blockchain but my accountant's not on the blockchain or my financial information is not yet on the blockchain because i use a crappy cpa or something like that then right. is the blockchain then worthless because not everybody is there's like you know there has to be some there has to be a huge market share on the service in order for it to pull and gather the information right i i think that is right it's a little that's probably a little bit above my my pay grade <laughs> a, block, a, a blockchain engineer but as an example of what you're saying the promise of um electronic medical records was that way before now, you know, everyone's electronic medical records would be available to all their doctors and yeah. it would, you know, you get this great improvement in care because everyone would be able to compare notes. <laughs> that has been so far a complete total bust because of exactly what you're saying. Yeah. This doctor uses this system. This doctor mm -hmm. uses that system. The hospital uses a third system. Nobody talks to each other at all. Yeah. It, it's great. It's digital information. Doesn't matter. It just sits on a server and is never used. So, yes, that's probably another impediment to widespread yeah. adoption. Yeah. Yeah, there was another. You got to get. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I was saying there's another example like that. It was the police were not the police and all their reports about all the criminals and all the, you know, the incidents or phone calls for a certain person were on record with the police department. But then the FBI and all these other government agencies didn't have any record of that because they were on a completely distant, different system. They're all under yeah. the government, but they don't have any, you know, they're not sharing any information. So, again, it's like a bust. There's no point of having even one system because not everybody else is on the same thing. That's right. And that's, you know, one of the things about technology uh, is it ultimately, like it or not, it depends on human beings. It depends on the behavior 
and the adaptability of human beings and human beings we are just a really difficult <laughs> species you yeah. know yeah and and so the technology can be great but uh, i mean here's a here's a stupid example the keyboard you are sitting in front of right uh -huh. now and the one i'm sitting on in front of right now the so-called -called qwerty keyboard because uh -huh. of the letters on the top row we have known forever that that is a very, very inefficient keyboard, right? It was created to be inefficient because it, back when typewriters were in use, mechanical typewriters, you couldn't, they didn't want you to be able to type very fast because the keys would hit each other. So they, <laughs> they arranged the keys to make it as hard as possible to type back in the day. And We've known since computers were, you know, I've been alive and adult when computers were invented. And w one of the things people used to talk about is, oh, great, now we can get rid of the QWERTY keyboard. And everyone can start using a, much, a keyboard that's much easier to use and faster to type. Well, it's 2019 and what <laughs> Wow. It's an inefficient keyboard. The better mouse doesn't win all the time yeah because once you have a system that everyone is used to it's really mm -hmm. hard to get people to change hard so there you go off it. yeah no that's very true now let's talk a little bit about REITs in crowdfunding so REITs are first of all can you explain a little bit about what a REIT is a real estate investment trust I would be happy to and again there's articles about this on the blog a REIT uh, contrary to many people's belief, is just a tax designation. Um, if you jump through a bunch of hoops, like lots of hoops, that are described in Section 856 of the Internal Revenue Code, you become a REIT. And the only characteristic of a REIT that matters is that a REIT doesn't pay tax. It is not a taxable entity for federal income tax purposes. Wow. And that's all a REIT is. It is a tax entity. Um, so, in other words, if it weren't for the REIT statute, if you created a corporation and it went out and bought real estate and stuff, it would have to pay tax. And yeah. then when it when it distributed its income as dividends, then the shareholders have to pay dividend taxes. And way back when, when REITs were created, this was an idea that, hey, this kind of allows individual investors to invest collectively in this entity and pay only a single layer of tax. So that's that's what REITs are. They are a, a tax entity. Now, fast forward to today. We have a lot of entities yeah today that don't pay tax limited liability companies for example yeah don't pay tax their income flows through to the owners right on a schedule k1 and so speaking from a 30,000 foot peak the difference between a REIT and just a garden variety limited liability company is boils down to one very simple thing and that is, if you are the owner of a limited liability company, at the end of the year, you get this thing called a K-1. 
to report on your personal tax return. And K-1s can be really complicated. Whereas if you're an owner of a REIT, all you get is a very, very simple 1099, just like the kind you get from your interest-bearing checking account. So the tax reporting for a REIT is much, much simpler than it is for owning an interest in an LLC. And believe it or not, that is the main reason that we use REITs for crowdfunding. Because um, when we're doing like a Regulation A offering, where like the kind you were talking about, where you could invest as little as 5,000, we figure we're going to get a lot of investors who have very simple tax returns, and they don't want to have more complicated tax returns. So we do a REIT so that they can just get a 1099 rather than a K-1, believe it or not. That's why we do it. Got it. Okay, so all those, so almost, so all every time we do a crowdfunding campaign, it's through the through a REIT? When we do big when we do regulation okay. a offerings okay. which are going to involve up to 50 million raising up to 50 million dollars and where we're letting non-accredited investors participate in the title two world yeah in contrast yeah we're only letting accredited investors participate we figure they already have more complicated tax returns so getting one more k1 for yeah. an accredited investor doesn't matter. Got it. It's okay. And then for that, then would you use just a basic LLC or a partnership or? Basic LLC. Got it. Uh, the, the entity of choice is a Delaware LLC. That is the crowdfunding entity we always use. Got it. And why Delaware? Um, it's easy to spell. No. <laughs> <laughs> can do Ohio then. Um, yeah, I was just going to say Ohio. Um, now, there are a couple of benefits to Delaware. One, um, because Delaware has always been used, like every public company is a Delaware corporation. Yeah. Um, lawyers all over the country are comfortable with Delaware and know that if there's a Delaware entity involved, it means their clients are not being ripped off. Got it. So everyone's comfortable with Delaware. That's not a very good answer. Another reason is that Delaware laws are very, very good. They're very clear. Okay. Um, they give us a lot of flexibility. Another thing is that Delaware has a very good court system, a business-only court system that allows disputes to be resolved in a very good way. And awesome. finally... Delaware law allows us to protect the sponsor from lawsuits. Okay. And because the sponsor's the one hiring the lawyer, yeah. we choose the law that protects the sponsor. So for all those reasons, that's that's what Delaware is. And about. that last point that you said was that is that the same thing as that people say like, oh, it's a non piercing state? Is that what you mean? It protects the sponsor? Yeah, piercing is usually a different different issue, but Okay. Um, and it gets, it's a little bit complicated legally. Suffice it to say that Delaware offers the greatest, there's no state that offers better protection for the sponsor okay. than, than Delaware. Got it. Awesome. Cool. 
Well, what's the best way for people to reach out to you, um, you know, about crowdfunding, blockchain, law, if they need to hire somebody for their next crowdfunding campaign? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? The blog. I won't even bother to give you my email address because it takes <laughs> like so long. It takes four hours to spell. But if, if you go to the blog, crowdfundattny.com, you will, uh, you know, see all my contact. Cool. There's, I'm sure there's a button somewhere that says contact me. Awesome. That is definitely the best way. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the, on the podcast and, you know, sharing your, your wealth of knowledge about crowdfunding and blockchain. And, um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you.